All right. If you're ready, we begin today <clears throat> what is session six on the leaven of liturgy, in which we'll cover the epistle, the gospel, and the creed portions of our liturgy. And if you are paying close attention, you'll notice that this is the completion of the first portion of the liturgy, which is oftentimes called the liturgy of the word. And then from here, it turns to the liturgy of the sacrament or something, <clears throat> something akin to a title like that. Um, and I'll have a, a question for you in the midst of this, and maybe you'll remember what I just said when it comes to that question. But first of all, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. The Epistle and the Gospel. We talked a little bit last week about the collect and the calendar. The calendar has to do with the propers, the epistle, uh, or the collect, the epistle, and the gospel. But getting to the portion of the liturgy where we actually read the epistle, let's consider. Now, this is a picture, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, of the synagogue, uh, or, or one of the, the ruins of an, of an ancient synagogue that was around at the time of Jesus. Um, and so we learn when we consider the epistle that reading from the scriptures has always been a part of Christian worship as well, inherited, though, from the synagogue, where two lessons were typically read, one from something like a lectionary and then another from a person who was going to expound on something, a portion of scripture of their own choosing. And we recall Jesus in Nazareth standing up and reading uh, something to the effect of, uh, well, something that of which... He was the fulfillment. And he said, this scripture is today fulfilled in your ears. Close the book. And that was his commentary on the chosen scripture for the day. But that type of uh, uh, double scripture reading in a worship service is really has its roots in, in the synagogue. Early Christian church practice, as uh, we receive witness from uh, Justin Martyr, was to read from the, as he calls it, the memoirs of the apostles, in other words, the epistles, for as long as there was time, which I've always found to be an amazing uh, rubric, as long as there was time, and who gets to decide how much time there is, the person reading, and you know what a microphone is like, a microphone is equal to one and a half glasses of beer, because everything you say is funnier and everything you say is more interesting. So perhaps when you're the reader, you figure you've got all day to read. It's possible. But lectionaries and limits to the amount that was read developed in the 4th century, uh, really, when a portion of scriptures were uh, written down from the beginning to the end and we stop. And then we go from the one uh, reading to the other. In terms of the epistle, readings from the epistles either follow the theme of the day or the season, uh, which is not as noticeable during the season of Trinity, and you'll see why here in a second. But, you know, if we're in the season of Epiphany, it's possible that the, the, I know the gospel will, but the epistle oftentimes will have something to do with an Epiphany. And so you listen closely for the matchup of the season with the epistle. It isn't always self-evident. 
But uh, it also, if, if there isn't uh, a theme for the day, sometimes it follows a rough form of what we call Lectio Continua. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But if you've ever been to a church where they preached a sermon series, and they start at the beginning of Romans and went all the way through the entire book of Romans, and the pastor gets up and says, last week we left off at chapter 6 of Romans, so we take up where we left off. That's Lectio Continua. So that's a form of lectionary, but the lectionary is just basically one big long working through of a, of a, of a, a book of the Bible or something. We have something kind of like that if you uh, pay close attention during the season of Trinity especially. Trinity 6 through Trinity 8 is from Romans. Trinity 9 through Trinity 12 is from First and Second Corinthians. Romans, First and Second Corinthians. 13 through 15 is Galatians. 16 through 21 is Ephesians, except the 18th. We'll forget about that for a second. And the 20th, 22nd, 23rd is Philippians, 24th is Colossians. So over the course of Trinity, you do actually get Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians in the exact order of the New Testament. It's a little bit of Lectio Continua and a little bit of a walk through the New Testament uh, in the epistles. For the rest of the church year, it oftentimes follows uh, the theme of the day or the season. It doesn't follow that sort of, you know, continuation kind of idea. Um, the epistle was traditionally in the ancient church read by someone in a minor order. We talked about the propers and then the minor propers. There's also holy orders and then minor orders. So holy orders, of course, are bishop, priest, and deacon. Minor orders, uh, they used to be called... Uh, the lector, the porter, I believe, was kind of like the usher. Um, oh, there were two others. The cantor was a minor order, and the subdeacon was a minor order. I, I could be getting that slightly wrong, but you get kind of the idea. These are not meant in necessarily in holy orders, but they're in minor orders. Um, and I want to say, well, I'll just say that. So the epistle was traditionally read by someone in the minor order of lector. And that, is, that has uh, changed and gone back and forth through the centuries. Uh, and uh, yeah, so there you go. That's the epistle. The gospel. Okay, so once we've read the epistle, we move uh, quickly on to the gospel. Some churches have... A, what they call a gradual. Uh, if you come to the early service, a gradual is read, not sung, because there's no music at the early service. So the gradual is read. It's like a verse. At our church, we have the sequence hymn. You might go to a church where they have a gradual hymn. It's, it's basically the same thing. It's between the epistle and the gospel. Something is sung or said. <clears throat> but you may also go to another church where they don't have a gradual or a sequence hymn, or anything. They just go right from the epistle to the gospel, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, uh, it's just the way the, the local rite manifests. So the BCP gospel readings follow the ancient annual schedule of readings for the most part, which is a one-year schedule or lectionary. The gospel is traditionally read by a deacon, and by the way, all priests are deacons because you remain a deacon and all bishops are deacons because you're first a deacon and then you're a priest, but you're still a deacon. 
and then you're a bishop, but you're still a deacon. So if you have, find a bishop who's not un, unwilling to do the work of a deacon, he's actually uh, needs to, to be, I don't know who will kick him in the butt, but somebody has to, uh, because the bishop is a deacon. If there's no deacon about, the bishop does the deacon's work. Uh, likewise for the priest. So priests don't need to walk around saying, well, I don't do that anymore. I'm a priest now. No, it's actually, you're still a deacon. So that's why you'll have me read the gospel. And if I'm not here and, and Deacon Kimbrell at the time is here, it's always Deacon Kimbrell reading the gospel. But once he's uh, ordained to the priesthood, well, then it could be either him or me, one of us. Um, in the uh, ordination to the diaconate, the liturgy there, um, the question is asked, will you diligently read the gospel unto the people assembled in the church where you shall be appointed to serve? And the correct answer is yes. <laughs> that is part of the ordination of, to the diaconate is yes, I will read that gospel. And the priest doesn't forget that ordination vow when he becomes a priest. So yes, I will read that. Um, here we have, I think this is in the Orthodox Church, but we have a deacon reading the gospel. Uh, this looks childish, ABC, but the three-year lectionary, I don't know if you've ever been to a church that has year A, year B, and year C um, in the lectionary, and each year you get a different epistle, a different gospel, until you start over, a three-year lectionary. Some Anglicans have adopted a three-year cycle. The idea is more Holy Scripture will be covered over time. And a Lectio Continua tradition may be instituted and the sermon series may be encouraged. You don't hear ever, I think, a sermon series at St. George's, uh, for better or for worse. Um, I'm not a big fan, but anyhow, uh, Lectio Continua, if you look at a three-year cycle, you'll find that you're working through 1 Corinthians, you know what I mean, chapter, verse, all the way through. And it takes three years to get through the whole thing. Um, this is the question, is that better? And there's some who say, oh, of course it's better, just look at it. But you have to ask yourself, is the liturgy a Bible study? Is this a Bible study? Um, if we didn't work through 1 Corinthians and hit every chapter and verse, is that the reason you came? Or is that the reason you come on Wednesday to the Bible study? You go chapter and verse to the Bible study there. The liturgy is a little bit different there is a shift in thinking when you go to that three-year lectionary in which the, the sacrament can potentially play a lesser role and the Bible study element of the service gets uh, a little bit more encouraged. I can't miss this week because we're covering chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. I would rather you say, I can't miss this week because I need to be fed of the Lord at his altar rather than I don't want to miss chapter 5. So um, I'm not a big fan of the three-year. It's, it's not a travesty or anything like that. It's, it's, it's okay. Also, uh, there's another element of benefit of the one-year, which is when you show up at church, if you don't know what day it is, and someone gets up and reads, um, and a census went out, and, and, and uh, something about a census. As soon as you hear that verse about census, you know it's Christmas, Right? This kind of thing, if you're in the one-year cycle long enough in your life, you'll hear that Jesus was lost to his parents and they were searching for him and they found him in the temple and you know it's Epiphany. Because you know, it, it, there's, a, there's an orientation to this one-year uh, 
schedule that I think is a good thing. Anyway, no questions? Good. <laughs> three Creeds. I've never seen this movie, but apparently it's a movie called Creed, and there's a Creed 3, so anyhow, unrelated. The Nicene Creed, uh, we're moving on from the Epistle and Gospel now. Any questions about Epistle and Gospel before we move on? Okay, so this is the fire hose. Uh, Nicene Creed is used for Holy Communion, typically. The Apostles' Creed is typically used for catechesis. You'll see it in the catechesis of the Book of Common Prayer and other churches. Also for morning and evening prayer, the Apostles' Creed is used. Uh, it is allowed in the 1928 Book of Common Prayer for it to be used for Holy Communion, but I think that's unique to the 1928 and unique to Anglicanism. Almost every other church will use the Nicene Creed. And I'll confess, I've never been to an Anglican church where they use the Apostles' Creed for Holy Communion. Um, uh, each of these may be said or sung. I don't know if you've been to a, to a service where the creed is sung. It can be sung. It's usually sung uh, monotone on a particular note. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And the organ's even playing along with you. And then when you get to the end, Amen. It's a chant. It's not a tune. It's, just, it's a chant. Um, a higher church expression. Athanasian Creed is read usually only on Trinity Sunday. It's very long, but a thorough, uh, uh, a thorough treatment of the Trinity in the Athanasian Creed. But we're going to stick to the Nicene Creed because that's what we use for Holy Communion. We're talking about the leaven of liturgy, specifically Holy Communion. So we, here's your trick question, or your question. We have in our order Creed and then Homily. But there was a time when the sermon was preached prior to the recitation of the creed. It went homily and then creed. Can anyone guess why? <laughs> Latin church. What's that? Latin church. Uh, but there was a rationale, not just a... Why? Like why? Not which church would do it, but uh, yes, sir. Rob. If, you, if whoever gave the sermon was Ooh, that's a good reason, but that's not the actual, that's not the original reason, Joe. Would it be sort of an affirmation? Well, uh, it is an affirmation, but here, here's the reason why. Um, well, I'll push the little button. This was the end of the liturgy of the Word, and catechumens and unbelievers who need to hear a sermon were asked to leave before reciting, we believe, because they don't know if they believe this yet. So in the early church, uh, there was a, a strict divide where people were actually escorted out of the church because we're about to switch to Holy Communion. And if you're not a baptized believer, not uh, in this church, not incorporated into the body of Christ, then you're not going to be uh, ass- uh, assenting to your faith and you're not going to be receiving communion. So we're going to let you hear the sermon, though, and then we're going to escort you out and then we're going to say the creed, the, those that remain. Um, not as an exclusive kind of thing so much as when you're ready, you'll say the creed with us. The church got rid of escorting people out uh, many centuries ago, so we don't do that so much, unless there's real trouble. And then we'll, we've got ushers for that. Yeah, we'll escort you out. But that's, the, so it has to do with being an affirmation. The creed does have to do with if your priest is wrong, the, the creed will straighten him out or straighten the people out, hopefully. Uh, but it's an affirmation that we're not sure everyone who's here at this moment really can affirm with us. That's the idea. And also, the original wording of the creed was we believe, not I believe. Um, that's, a, that's another thing we'll, we'll talk about. 
But uh, speaking of the Nicene Creed, here's Eusebius of Caesarea, the church historian of the fourth century. The Nicene Creed was likely the local creed of Eusebius of Caesarea pressed into service at the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325. So it was, uh, churches had local creeds, you know what I mean? Uh, Before a person was baptized in Caesarea, they would have to assent to the creed um, before they were incorporated into the body of Christ. Um, so when, they, when the First Ecumenical Council came about and all the bishops were free to meet together and really straighten out Arianism, they said, why don't we just make a creed for all of us rather than local creeds now that we have the freedom to do this? So the Nicene Creed, though, was used originally not as a complete statement of the Christian faith, but to condemn Arianism the belief that Jesus was not fully God, which was the heresy about which the First Ecumenical Council was called. Heresy. How would you like to have your portrait uh, and around it? It's Arius, uh, arch-heretic, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's known as the arch-heretic. Uh, Arius said there was a time when the sun was not. Christ was of similar substance, not the same substance as the Father. So the First Ecumenical Council... There had been confusion in the church, and they said, we've got to get this straightened out. Let's all have all the bishops meet together. They all met together, and this is uh, the reason that our Nicene Creed says, of the same substance as the Father. The answer to the question, um, is Arius right or wrong? He is the arch-heretic. He is wrong. Um, A century and a half later, now this is where the fire hose starts. You've got to get your head into this one. A century and a half later, the Monophysites, or the Coptics, Egyptians, held so strongly to the union of the Father and the Son that they wouldn't say that Christ had two natures, divine and human. Now, this comes in the 4th century, but this is the first place in which the Nicene Creed was inserted into the liturgy was amongst the Monophysites, okay, uh, the Coptics. At the Fourth Ecumenical Council, 451, Chalcedon determined that Jesus Christ is two natures in one person. Now, this doesn't have to do with his union uh, consubstantiality with the Father, but it has to do with Christ himself. Two natures in one person, uh, unconfused and uh, united, but 100% both at the same time. Fully divine, fully man in one person. The Monophysites believed that saying two natures was a contradiction of Nicaea. This has to do with language and time and space. So we've got Egyptians, and then we've got this decision being made in Turkey. And they didn't have email, and they didn't have the Pony Express even. And they were speaking different languages. And if you've ever studied languages, you know there isn't always a one-for-one word. And when we're getting into something very esoteric like natures and personhood, well, the word person, the word nature aren't always the same in each language, don't mean the same thing. So the Coptics, when they heard Chalcedon, they heard a contradiction of Nicaea. And they said, we reject the council of Chalcedon, the Christological council, And they said, and the way that we're going to assert our rejection is we're going to put the Nicene Creed in our liturgy. Weird way for the Nicene Creed to get into the liturgy, isn't it? Um, Because the Monophysites, we would consider heretics, but anyhow, or the ancient church, or the church has always. 
The Nicene Creed was first used in the liturgy by Monophysites, who resisted the statements of the Council of Chalcedon. That's how it first came in, was as a correction. Now, that would be a perceived correction, because uh, here we see, you know, uh, Pope Francis and the Coptics coming together to, to suggest that maybe we've been saying the same thing with two different languages for several centuries. It's possible. <laughs> so, and that, this is supposedly a controversial photo, and uh, this was posted online by someone who said, he wins the heretic award, you know what I mean? Uh, because you should never, 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 never talk to the Coptics. Well, um, uh, anyway, that may be a different, that may be a different story uh, for a different day, but <clears throat> nevertheless, there is a good chance that the Monophysites or the Miaphysites, the Coptics, and the rest of the world are actually saying the same thing, but there's been an age-old confusion about language. And you know how things solidify. They, what's the word? Not solidify. What's the forest with the trees that turn into... Petrify. They don't even solidify. They petrify. Anyway, um, that's the the 5th century, the 6th century. But... uh, the Nicene Creed also made its way into the liturgy for the Visigoths. Okay, so the Visigoths, in the 6th century in Spain, the Arian Visigoths, they were Christian, but Arians, were converted to the Catholic faith, and the Nicene Creed was introduced into the liturgy to remind them of their conversion away from Arianism. So that's the second time that the Nicene Creed has been injected uh, into the liturgy to correct a heresy, to keep us all straight. Your comment, if your pastor is preaching a terrible sermon and then the creed contradicts him, go with the creed. Don't go with your priest, go with the creed. Okay, so uh, it was in, put in, into the liturgy in, in Spain in the 6th century. Um, and also for the same reason, to the claim that the Holy Spirit proceedeth from the Father was later added the phrase and the Son in order to solidify anti-Arianism or orthodoxy. And the Eastern Church took this as a subordination of the Holy Spirit. So this is down in the weeds, I know. But if you say uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, it seems like the Father and the Son are of the same substance, but the Holy Spirit is below somehow. Uh, we'll, we'll cover that in just a second. Um, but you should first of all recognize that the Western Church was not trying to destroy the Eastern Church. The Western Church was trying to destroy Arianism, which everyone agreed was a her- heresy. And the Visigoths had just come into the church holding Arianism in their heads. We had to get it out because that actually, if it was true, none of us would be saved. Um, and the Christian faith would be useless if Christ wasn't fully God. So that was another reason uh, at that time that the, the creed was added into the liturgy. And that, you know, we're talking about leaven, right? The leaven of liturgy. We're putting this into the liturgy so that that will work through the minds of the Visigoths. It will work through the minds of the heretics and eventually they will get it. Um, you say it over and over and over and over and over again. And one day you'll have a light that goes off in your brain and you say... I bet you that's right. I see how that connects with this or that. Um, so here we go. Uh, a creed for all, eventually. We talked a little bit earlier about Charlemagne. 
uh, in an earlier class. The Emperor Charlemagne followed suit at the end of the 8th century, adding the creed to the liturgy. And you remember, his effort was to make the one liturgy for the whole uh, Roman Empire. So uh, his effort to form a unified Roman rite brought the creed into common usage everywhere. So, uh, Char- well, let's see. Charlemagne follows the, the move in Spain, and Charlemagne tries to get essentially all the Roman right to be on the same page. He also says this is to be used on Sundays and holy days. And uh, you could use the Apostles' Creed for catechesis and offices, etc. You see where this is all coming from. Uh, but it progressed from Rome to the Sarum Rite in Salisbury and from the Sarum Rite to the Book of Common Prayer. Same tradition. So where do we get all of this from? Uh, they didn't just make it up in the 16th century. In fact, this has been a part of the whole Western church. Why, why the liturgy looks the way it does. Why does the creed appear there? Why is the creed in there at all? Why is it the Nicene Creed? Why do we say it on Sundays and not on weekdays? Why, it's all you know, centuries and centuries, millennia old answers to these questions. Um, but I th- your, your, your statement, what about your uh, priest if your priest has a bad sermon? That kind of is what the creed is there for. If you've got goofballs in the church, the creed ought to straighten them out, hopefully. Um, if you ever have a priest that says, we don't say the creed in our church anymore, look out, okay? But what about this creed? This maybe should have been two classes, but we're going to try, okay? What about this creed? So the creed is a statement of, if you notice, it, it, it comes to you in a form of essentially three paragraphs. The first paragraph is very short. Origins. Where do we come from? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And by that is meant everything. At the time, there was no third category. I'm not sure if there is today. Everything you can see and everything that you can't see, he created it all. That's where we're from. We also believe in the Son and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the Father, uh, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Here we have what we talked about before, consubstantiality is of the same substance as the Father, answering the Arian question. He is begotten, but not begotten like any kid you ever begot. Um, begotten eternally. In other words, there never was a time when he was not begotten. Try to get your head around that. Um, begotten, not made, is the, is the statement. Uh, begotten had never meant that before the Nicene Creed, when they had to say begotten, not made. And immediately you realize we're in a different category. This is a different category of things. Everything you've ever known to be begotten has been made at one point. There was a time when it was not. Uh, eternal generation is, is a statement of the Nicene Creed. Discussion of the incarnation, and then basically chronologically, the virgin birth, the passion, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the return, the judgment, and the kingdom. That's all in that second big long paragraph of the Nicene Creed. And if you find your priest resisting one of those, you got trouble. <laughs> um, And the final uh, paragraph, which is now a paragraph, it used to just say, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, period. That was at the end of Nicaea. Why would they not address the Holy Spirit? Because they were trying to address Arianism. 
which didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. That's why after the first ecumenical council, it just said, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, period. But by the second ecumenical council, a heresy about the Holy Spirit had arisen. And they said, you know what, we're going to fix this. We're going to put an orthodox statement about the Holy Spirit into the Nicene Creed. And eventually the church says, let's just put it into the liturgy and let that leaven work. Second Ecumenical Council, 381, a new heresy was addressed, pneumata machianism, okay? <laughs> Which simply means pneuma, spirit, machian, fighters, spirit fighters. Which sounds like a good thing, it's actually a bad thing. They refused to say that the Holy Spirit was fully God. They were fighting against the Holy Spirit. They said, all right, we believe that the Father is God and the Son is God, but not the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so the ontological, the state of being, and the economic role, what does he do uh, of the Spirit, was addressed in this new third paragraph. I believe in the Holy Ghost. We got it. But who is he? The Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, okay, and the Son, (laughs) I look right at you, (laughs) and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, okay, that has something to do with the economy, they call the economic trinity, what does each role, what do do each of the persons do, but ontologically, Lord, Lord and giver of life, how do we say that? We just said that the Father was the creator that, uh, and that Christ uh, participated in that as well. Um, and he is the Lord. How is the Holy Spirit then the Lord and giver of life? Look at that little guy. <laughs> or girl, I'm not sure in this picture. Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit is spoken of as Lord and giver of life because of the role, the economic role, he plays in the sacramental life of the church. Okay? Um, in baptism... The Christian is regenerated. In other words, whereas once you were dead, now you are alive. Life. Giver of life. The Holy Spirit is central to the uh, sacramental act of baptism. Lord and giver of life. Incorporated into the body of Christ. The body of Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. When the Holy Spirit does a work... God does a work in the sacraments, and life is the result. So he is Lord. In other words, he is fully God, and he is the giver of life, which means something is really happening in these sacraments, and it is the paraclete, the comforter, the helper that the Lord has sent after the ascension of Christ to give life to the whole church. So that Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, can now dwell in each of you. And you don't have to be in Galilee at the right time, at the right place, to meet Christ. You can be in Simpsonville on October the 23rd at 11 o'clock, and you'll meet him there. And the Holy Spirit will be right in the middle of that action, because he is the Lord and giver of life. The Holy Spirit affects the consecration in the sacrament. And Jesus says, if you do not eat and drink, you have no life in you. There's another aspect, sacramentally, how the, the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. Oh boy, I'll just, should we just stop right there? <laughs> Filioque.
Any questions about that? I find that pretty compelling. Um, or no questions? Oh, yes, please, John. Correct. Glad you asked. That's a, we're back to the filioque. So, um, well, let's just let's tackle through it, and then uh, we'll see if we haven't answered the question by then. So, in our creed, we say that He is the Holy Spirit, is the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. In the Western Church, we say, and the Son. Holy Scripture speaks of the Spirit as both the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son, and numerous references exist concerning Christ sending the Spirit, just as the Father sends the Son. The book of John uh, is continually talking about, you know, uh, Jesus in the farewell discourse is continually talking about, and if I leave, it'll be expedient for you that I go, because if I go, I'll send to you the Holy Spirit. So that's what the idea, what do you mean uh, the, fa- uh, the Son sends the Holy Spirit? But the, the Spirit is sent by Christ just as the Father sends the Son, the same kind of language. But if the Father sends the Son, but the Son isn't subordinate, then in the same way the Holy Spirit can be sent by the Father and the Son and not be subordinate either. So there, there is a, a manner in which a person, literally a person, may acquiesce to the will of another and not be less than that person. This isn't a power struggle. I guess we're used to seeing power struggles. And so when any time one person sends another, we say, oh, I see. He's in charge and he's less. And, and what the church is trying to say is, no, that's not, that's not what's being said. Uh, if their will is united and they acquiesce to one another because of a perfect loving relationship, what that looks like is being willing to go when you're sent. Not saying, you don't tell me when to go, I tell you when to go. That doesn't exist in the Trinity. So uh, there, are, there are a slew of Bible verses here, but it's not exactly uh, the filioque that you'd find in the New Testament. Eastern Orthodox feel, though, that the filioque reduces the Holy Spirit to a subordinate position. So whether the filioque does or doesn't, that's what the Eastern Church believes, or, or the, the Copts especially, but the Eastern Church in general. Um, so uh, that whole idea of the Holy Spirit being less. Oh, you know what? The Coptic issue is slightly different, isn't it? I, I'm sorry, I'm confusing the two in my mind. Uh, the filioque and the, the notion of Chalcedon being a little bit wrong. I'll get to that in just a second then. Um, but that is, that is the tension that exists now between the Eastern and Western Church. One of the great tensions, I just read a little website the other day, where the, Western, the Roman Church says that the two chief errors of the Eastern Church are that they don't acknowledge the supremacy of the Pope and that they hold on or that they resist the filioque. Those are the two chief errors. If you want to have a fist fight, go into the Orthodox Church and say, oh, I know what your errors are. And they'll say, oh, our errors. Those are your errors. They would write the exact opposite. They would say the two chief errors of the Western Church are uh, supremacy of the papacy and the filioque clause. Arms crossed. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, th- this is a, a thousand-year-old uh, uh, division in the church. It's not a happy one. 
It's not a funny one, even. We're giggling, but it's not that funny. Uh, yes, please. There have been times when the Pope has gone to uh, to invade the church. Right. Know, to meet, like, with one of the patriarchs. Usually, they have the patriarch. And he will, when they recite the creed, the creed. he will leave out the filioque. Omit the filioque. So, you know, he's yeah. There's not, it's not simply, a, the filioque issue is not simply theological. There's a pastoral issue there too, and an ecclesiological one in which the, the Western church ignored the Eastern church. That wasn't so smart. Um, left the Eastern church out of that decision, uh, banking on their primacy and supremacy, and that was not appreciated. Um, that's an ancient wound. Um, I hate to accuse one or the other of continually reopening that wound, but it is a, a gaping wound in the side of Christ. And you remember if I wrote, I wrote that article a while ago about where the, where the Anglican church is? We're right at the wound site. We don't flee to one side or the other. We're right there. And you'll find that in the Anglican church, such as ours, we don't cling real tightly to the filioque clause saying, you know, this is the chief you know, orthodoxy of the church or the chief heresy of the church. Some priests don't even say it. Some priests in our church will just not say the filioque because they don't think that was right. Um, at least this, that way of stating uh, the orthodox belief about the church, uh, about Christ, that, uh, or the Holy Spirit, I should say. But we're speaking about the Holy Spirit who spake by the prophets. In other words, this is the same Holy Spirit who blessed individuals of the Old Testament with inspiration. Key word, individuals. In the Old Testament, you'll see the same Holy Spirit inspiring Elijah. The same Holy Spirit inspiring Elijah. But in time, uh, Joel 2.28 is fulfilled. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. This is the book of Acts, the second chapter of the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit is poured out not just on this prophet and on that priest and on this king, but on everyone. That change, that's a game changer, and that's the nature of the church. Speaking of the church, recognize that we say, and I believe the church, not I believe in the church, I believe in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Ghost, and I believe the church. I don't believe in the church as a fourth member of the quaternity. (laughs) I just made that up. But I believe the church. That's different. Actually, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One, because of what Jesus says in John 17 about the church, there is one church, uh, and he prays that we may be one as he and the Father are one. Okay, there's one church. Um, holy, not because the people are so wonderful, but because the Holy Spirit is in the church. If the Holy Spirit isn't in the church, boy, you have a problem. I don't, you can't even really call it the church, actually. Um, Catholic, not in, in, the, in the sense that it's Roman Catholic, but it's Catholic and that it's universal. Uh, it's not a church for one nation or, a, or some other nation or something like that. It's apostolic in two senses. Number one, in that the faith that we know was preached and it was sufficient when it was preached to the, God, to the apostles. And when the apostles went out, they had a full, complete, uh, full octane gospel. 
Something didn't need to be added to that gospel 18 centuries later or 16 centuries later to make it full. It was full at the beginning. That's an apostolic faith. So the question for the Orthodox uh, Christian should always be, um, is this something that the apostles would have agreed to? Or is this something the apostles would have even recognized or known about? That's a, that's a longer discussion. But also, it's an apostolic church in that the apostolic succession exists here. In other words, the ministry of the apostles laid down, uh, uh, handed down from Christ to the apostles, from the apostles to the sub-apostolic period church leaders all throughout until today, continues that apostolic succession. That's another sense in which the church is apostolic. And yes, holy is curiously missing from the BCP uh, from 1549 onwards. And that's a whole other thing. See, this is the fire hose. It's too much for one class, but we're almost done. We're almost done. Uh, The reason that holy is curiously missing from our creed and why we inject it back in, uh, there's a number of, of... of theories about this, but probably the most logical uh, theory is that, you know, here we are in the 16th century, the, the cry is ad fontes, back to the sources. That fervor of the 16th century, there were some early texts from Spain, Rome, and Constantinople which omitted the word holy, and those were thought at the time by some to be the original ones, because as... Uh, as documents develop, people generally don't cut things out. People add things in. So there was a great suspicion about the Roman Catholic Church that they would call themselves holy, wouldn't they? I bet you that's not original. And so the Book of Common Prayer comes out without the, the word holy in it. It's not to say that the church isn't holy, but it's, it's an idea that crept in that, uh, that this was not original. Texts were not available at the time to prove that it actually was original. Um, nevertheless, we insert it verbally. And then the, the creed ends. Oh, yes, please, Jane. Um, can you give me a grammar lesson? Why is Catholic and apostolic in capital letters and not Capitals, I don't have an answer for capitals, but it doesn't mean Roman Catholic, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Well, it's a hard thing to answer because the, the uh, no, it's okay. The original creed, there were no capitals, or it was either all minuscule or all capital in uh, the original creed. So you wouldn't be able to go back to an original text and find, was this capitalized? But I do know that what, that what was meant when this was written had nothing to do with Roman Catholic. Had, that distinction was... 1,200 years later, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Um, nevertheless, at the end of the creed, I believe, uh, uh, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Uh, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Here is the belief in atonement. Here's the belief in physical resurrection, everlasting life, which is another anti-Gnostic uh, statement, um, and that there is bonus material, but I can't get to it today. Uh, that's that's the fire hose for today. And I'll I'll say that the Coptic Church, um, uh, sometimes the the name monophysite, which is one phusis or one nature, is considered derogatory, 
and miaphysite is used instead as a sort of a kinder, uh, I think mia is like, oh, I could be wrong, through, to, through one nature or some, something to that effect. Generally, it's understood that what they meant by nature is what we meant by person. And so when they heard two natures, they heard two persons, and they said that can't be right. That's Nestorianism. That's another heresy that, that, that can't be right. And I think the, the, uh, once all of the, the wounds are healed and the emotions settle down, I think the Coptic church and the rest of the, of, of the Christian world begin to understand they were actually asserting the same thing. If you insisted that there was only one nature to Christ, that is a heresy. But most now believe that the Coptics actually never were saying that. And the Coptics understand the rest of the church really wasn't saying that uh, Christ had two persons. But so it's a... In the church, when things become petrified, it's very difficult to have a discussion, especially if, if my grandfather and your grandfather had an ancient feud and their grandfathers had an ancient feud. It just is uh, very hard to unravel all of those knots. But uh, yeah, generally, we don't have a, a, a beef with the Coptic uh, church, um, but there, there has to be a discussion that takes place. Um, what do you mean by that? You know, it's, a, it's a hard thing. But we're way over time today, so uh, thank you. We'll be back next week. Thank you.